Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. I'm back playing solo, flying solo for the second half of the defense show against the Jaguars. Gianna was with us for the first show. Uh, go back and give that a download. Uh, it's a good listen, and uh, she has some very interesting things to say about the Ravens locker room, about uh, various her take on the on the slot corner situation and uh, and what's going on with Kyle Hamilton, where he might be most useful, uh, why the Ravens might not have been um, willing to go to Daryl Worley in this game. Uh, when Marcus Williams went down, but a few different things. And uh, she had some interesting points to make about that. Uh, want to uh, welcome you folks back, and we'll talk about the individual players in this. We'll have a brief section on the mailbag, uh, and I'll give you my defensive MVPs for the game. But uh, we'll get right to it. And, uh, you know, big game for the Ravens, obviously. Uh, I'll talk briefly now about their path to the number one seed because the Ravens have three different primary ways they can get there so way number one they can win all three of their games so that's all the ways they can win three and oh they all get the ravens the number one seed not surprisingly the ravens do have their destiny in their own hands what is a little bit of surprising to some people in baltimore is that miami also has its destiny in their own hands if they win all three they get the number one seed regardless of of what else the ravens may do even if they go uh, two and one. If they lose to Miami and Miami wins uh, wins all three, then the Miami will get the one seed. Uh, now let's talk about what happens if the Ravens go two and one. They get the number one seed in every instance where Miami has at least one loss. It could be to the Ravens or it could be to somebody else. And Miami plays Buffalo, Dallas, and the Ravens in their final three games. So I think this is probably the Ravens' most likely path to the to the number one seed is to win two out of three. Uh, maybe they lose this week in San Francisco. Maybe they lose against Miami. It'd be really nice if they could win both of those and have it sealed up before week 18 so they didn't have to play against the Steelers or, or, or could even ditch the game intentionally to the Steelers to get the Steelers in and keep a team like, say, Buffalo out of the playoffs would be would be pretty spectacularly good. So um the Ravens if they win if they win two out of three then Miami has to lose one game it could come to the Ravens or it could be either of their other two games and uh very likely um in there that 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 would be the result but that's not the only way the Ravens can get the number one seed even with only one win they have to have a few chips fall the right ways for that they have to have one all of the following they need one loss by the Chiefs that's going to be a little bit of a tough knot the Chiefs have three games they should be favored in Uh, One loss by the Browns, same thing, but the Browns have a little bit tougher schedule, I think. And then they either need to beat Miami, which would do it, uh, satisfy this third condition, or Miami has to lose both of their games to Dallas and Buffalo. Definitely a possibility that they would lose both those games after beating the Ravens. But the easiest way, if they win one out of three, is just take that Miami game 
Um, if the Chiefs and Browns lose, and that could actually happen by the end of next week where the Ravens have only won one game, the Chiefs and the Browns have both lost, and the Ravens know they've got it already, uh, even if they drop a, a yet another game and finish at 12-5, and five, um, uh, they could have it. So they're, they're, they're the three primary ways. It may be possible for them to do it with no wins the rest of the way. I haven't really investigated that closely, but uh, uh, you know, it uh, does not seem like it would be possible because no, it, it would not be possible because Miami then would would have them beat because uh, Miami would would win would go one and two. They would catch up a, a, a game on the Ravens and they would have them. So it's one, two, or three wins could possibly do it, and and uh, two wins is probably the one where they they have the highest stack of probability. If you look out. On the Devoa-based playoff odds, which are sitting out there, and they're updated through, it looks like, 12-18 now. Uh, Ravens are sitting a 67.6% chance to get the one seed. Interesting, maybe. Jacksonville dropping to 8-6. and six, They lost any possibility of getting the one seed. So the AFC South will not have the number one seed uh, this year. Uh, golf claps for that. Um, we're down to Kansas City now, who's got a shot at it, 10.3%. And Miami at 20.7%. And the darkest of dark horses, the Cleveland Browns at 1.3%, are still not eliminated from that number one seed possibility. So if they come back and take the division, um, uh, they would have a shot at it, obviously. My, uh, Cleveland, um, in order to take the division, the, the, the Ravens' magic number right now is two. So over the remaining six outcomes, any combination of two in the Ravens' favor, meaning a Cleveland loss or a Baltimore win, clinches the division. Uh, that's obviously very important in terms of getting a home game uh, at least for the first game. Um, if they play a uh, you know a a two seed, they'll get two home games to start the playoffs, which would also be very nice. So uh, you know, multiple ways that the Ravens could 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 get some positive seeding results. They obviously really want that number one seed. They're in position to get it. Um, if they got the number two seed, which is the next highest probability of of uh, things that would happen. Um, it would be disappointing if they had to go to Arrowhead or even to Miami to play the AFC Championship. But on the other hand, um, you know, being the number two seed has uh, substantially more advantage than being the number three seed. So uh, uh, something to consider. I know everybody at this time of year wants to know what's going to clinch the, the the playoff spot for the Ravens. So they can they, with the magic number of two in the division, they actually can clinch the division title with a Ravens win and a Browns loss. Um, this weekend. So if they go in at San Francisco and win and the, and the Browns lose uh, at the same time, I forget who the Browns are even playing. Um, then uh, the, the Ravens will, uh, will take the division title uh, come uh, Monday morning anyway. So let's talk about some individual performances in this game. So uh, yeah, I, I do not want to belittle the performance of the defense in this game in any way. I thought they played very well. Anytime you give up seven points to Jacksonville on the road, that's clearly a, a, a very well-played game. Um, I think there's some questions come up about, did Jacksonville really shoot themselves in the foot multiple times that are fair? Uh, you know, one of the things that, that, that came out of this game is Jacksonville had three false starts on offense. Think about what would happen had Jacksonville come into Baltimore and had three false starts on offense, there would be all sorts of a mountain made about that being Ravens crowd noise. And, you know, I think that was actually true in the last Ravens home game in that half empty rainy stadium uh, when the, the, the Rams had three um, 
significant false start penalties that really hurt them. Um, but in this in this game, uh, uh, I thought there was not a lot of good reason for Jacksonville to have false starts on offense in their in their home ballpark, and yet they were able to uh, uh, to make that happen. And uh, thanks uh, thanks very much to them. They had some bad plays uh, at the end of the half. Uh, clearly, that that misery is something I wouldn't want to live through as a as a Ravens fan, certainly the ball being thrown to the outside there on uh, uh, after the ball uh, uh, you know, was down at the five yard line with just a few seconds left to play in the half. They didn't have time to get reset. Marcus Williams made a great inbounds tackle. Enormous gift from the Jaguars on that play. Um, they really need to throw the ball in the end zone, have two shots at that. I can't believe that they really thought one shot to the outside plus a potential of getting out of bounds was going to be better than two chances to the end zone. And I understand, by the way, if they don't want to spike that ball, I'm perfectly fine. If 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 I'm a Jaguars fan, I'm perfectly fine. If Lawrence runs up the line of scrimmage, throws the ball into the end zone right away with the hope of getting a completion, and if it goes incomplete or he can't find a receiver, throws it out of the end zone, and you, you live for, to, to, to have one more snap there. Um, I would understand that completely, but I thought the, the, the Jags did the Ravens uh, – quite a favor uh, at the end of the half in terms of uh, of that silliness. Uh, the number of drops, of course, uh, by the Jaguars, very significant in this game. Uh, there have been a number of games in the past where I find myself writing a similar defensive article. And almost always in the past, it's dealt with a game against the Cleveland Browns, where the Browns have just made so many mistakes of this type. And the Browns are now better as a franchise. They don't, they, you know, they're not in that same position anymore, but, you know, Going back to the mid-teens and the late aughts in terms of the um, uh, number of times the Browns shot themselves in the foot multiple times, that's what this game looked like from Jacksonville. And it's not like the Ravens didn't put them in this fear of their defense that that, that, that made them make some mistakes. So, so some of these, they seemed like unforced errors and they might have been forced errors. Okay, I'll buy some of that. But it was just a, it was an awful lot of mistakes that Jacksonville made in this game to uh, – uh, to help the Ravens along and, and and get it done. Let's talk about some individual players here. Uh, I'm going to start on the defensive line, talk about Justin Matabike because he's the one I know everybody wants to hear about. So let's get to him right off the bat. Four more quarterback hits in this game. He had five against the Rams, uh, one sack in each game. What we're seeing now happen with Matabike is a guy take over as a finisher in a way I cannot recall the Ravens having in a very long time. The last really great finisher I remember for the Ravens, uh, Michael McCrary, you know, would be in this category as a guy who who uh, just had super high motor and was always continuing to play. Matabike for a defensive lineman, very rare high-end motor in terms of keeping up. He's benefiting a lot from these early pressures in this game. Uh, Adafi Owe contributed to the intentional grounding non-sack that um, Matabike got earlier in the game. You can see Matabike really wanted that one to count as a sack too, but uh, uh, it was even almost seemingly to, uh, petitioning the officials for that for that to be the case. But it was effectively a sack for for uh, for all intents and purposes. And then, of course, when he did pick up his sack, he was actually blocked for most of that play. Patrick Queen got in on the play, forced Lawrence up in the pocket. Um, uh, Matabike discarded his uh, opposite number and uh, and made the sack there in a, a very nice close and a uh, a great finish uh, that that extended the sack streak. Matabike now 
Uh, sacks in 11 consecutive games. That's the single season NFL record. It ties it. Chris Jones is the other. Actually, there's three players who've done it. Um, uh, Chris Jones, Trey Hendrickson, and uh, Justin Matabike are the three players who've done it in a single season. If you go back to players who've done it over multiple seasons, Javon Curse um, did uh, had 12 in a row, 10 in 1999 to close up the season, and two more in 2000. So that's the only mountain left to climb for Justin Matabike at this at this point in terms of that sack record. Um, just a, a extraordinarily impressive. Um, he was on the field a lot and uh, and uh, still was effective. Uh, I, unbelievably, that's something I really haven't seen as much, and it's something that I don't want to become wedded to a position. But I did think that Matabike needed to play less snaps in total this year and would be more effective doing so because of two things. He'd been more effective in the games he played less snaps last year, and he'd also been less effective as the season went on. Well, we're not really seeing that same phenomenon this year. We're seeing Matabike adapt and and play extremely well, thrive um, with a uh, extended uh, snap responsibility. So uh, it's it's uh, it's great. It's very good for the defensive line as a whole. And I, I I don't know that I can I could I could probably conjecture, but I don't know that I can really pick the reason why I think he's doing better in this case. I mean, he could be better conditioned. There could be reasons why why he's uh, you know his body's at a different level this year. But I think one of the things is he's just benefiting from closing to such a degree that that uh, has been remarkable. So uh, been been very positive on what's happened with uh, with Matabike this year and. Uh, uh, hopefully they can ride him through right to the Super Bowl, and uh, and we'll have to see what happens with the contract after that. Uh, we've talked extensively about that on Friday morning GM, so I don't need to cover it here, but I think the safety net solution for the Baltimore Ravens is going to be having him play on the tag next year, even though a lot of money will have to be moved around in order to do that. I think he, I would say now, more likely than not, will be a Baltimore Raven, and if he is going to... um. Uh, be moved, I think it's much more likely that he goes the tag and trade route than the compensatory pick route. So one one thing the Ravens can do, which is which is really nice, is to sign him to the tag and instead of getting 2025 draft capital for him, they could get more and 2024 draft capital for him. That's what the Ravens, they desperately need that. So um, you know, while it seems like there's no way in hell we want to let Matabike go, and I certainly don't as a fan, as a you know, just enjoying his style of play, the way he's so complimentary with the with the other guys who've get, been getting first pressures on this team, and some of the ones he's generated himself, um, I, I, it would be a huge hole to try and fill um, if he were not here. But on the other hand, the Ravens may get an offer they just simply can't pass up. You know, they may get a a number one pick that's in the top half of the first round, uh, or or you know maybe no lower than about number twenty. Um, and if they did that, they could you know they could solve the left tackle issue, for example. And while the Ravens will have a need on the defensive line, pretty much no matter what next year, um, it would be nice to both have the the money back and a first round pick in exchange for Matabike if someone is willing to pay that. So uh, it'll be interesting. I think I think if he if he gets the franchise tag. Um, it does not necessarily mean he will play for the Ravens, but I do think it's the safety net. And I think the Ravens will franchise him um, when the season is over. And I'll probably talk to uh, uh, Voss more about that on the, on the next Friday morning GM. Other people in the defensive line, Brent Urban, another fine game. And he has played some great football right now this year. He's in his 10th year and, and he is really playing well. 
Uh, had a couple good plays. One really good run stop for a loss of two where he discarded his uh, his opponent fairly handily, uh, shed, him, shed him quickly. And another one where he dropped to cover um, and he did something, you know, it's very interesting. He, he um, looked behind him, which I do not normally see defensive linemen or linebackers do. They want to keep their eyes on the quarterback and they want to you know, see when they drop from coverage where he's looking to try and figure out where the player is. Well, he figured he tried to figure out where the receiver was by turning backwards. Uh, I don't know if that's really the proper technique or not, but regardless of the thing, he had an effect on Lawrence. Lawrence was was trying to shoot the ball over to the right. And I'm forgetting who the who the um, receiver there was, whether Jones or Washington or who it might have been. But uh, he intentionally threw the ball wide of Urban, where Urban did not even appear to be ready to react to a ball thrown in the lane directly to the receiver on that play. So exceptional play and uh, and really nice to to see him make a couple big plays in this game. Uh, he's been playing a lot of kind of um, low. Um, uh, what do I want to call it? Uh, recognition snaps. He's playing a lot of uncovered end in the previous week against the Rams. They needed a way to have something other than the base defense on there to uh, have him play effectively on the end of the line of scrimmage as an outside linebacker would with only one outside linebacker in the game. I thought he did a good job of that, even though it didn't really show up in the statistics while he was in the game, I thought he personally did a did a solid job at that. Um, so, anyway, he's, he, he definitely does not play uh, high drama snaps or the high leverage snaps for the Ravens. He plays a lot of first downs and some second downs. Um, but it's great to see him having a really effective season and uh, and couldn't be happier for him. Uh, Travis Jones is in the game, um, and and he uh, had an up and down game. Two missed tackles in this game. Uh, as you as you look at it from PFF, one of them was at the line of scrimmage and it was definitely a missed tackle. Another one I thought was a little bit ticky tack in terms of um, if you, if you look at the various services for missed tackles, PFF is very tough. And if you look at PFR, which is another service that has missed tackles, they're much easier. And and generally PFR total missed tackles will be will be, will be many fewer. So uh, PFF, if you basically could have had a shot at the guy on the ankle. Then they pretty much hit you with a missed tackle, and and uh, other services they're they're not nearly as uh, as harsh with the uh, with the players. But anyway, Travis Jones uh, did have a couple pressures in the game. Um, you know his his uh, uh, let me make sure I have him for the same number of pressures. I actually have Travis Jones for zero pressures, but what that probably means is that he had late pressures where he flushed Lawrence, he moved Lawrence after three seconds. And I don't give him credit for a pressure for those, but those plays are still important. Um, the other possibility is he might have been involved in getting close to Lawrence and flushing him from the pocket. Uh, one thing I did notice with Travis Jones is they were playing him a lot more on the passing downs earlier, early in the game, as opposed to having Pierce in there. Now, Pierce and Matabike have been like peanut butter and jelly this season in terms of, of playing together. And they did some of that in this game. But Jones, for instance, on the first drive was in there on third and six with, with Matabike when the when the drive got uh, shut down. On the second drive is third and 12, second and 12. Jones and Matabike were together. The third drive, the third and six where they got off the field, it was Jones and Matabike together. So I think we may be seeing a little bit of a change of the guard here in terms of how they want to deal with those two players and get Jones more of the obvious pass rushing snaps with Matabike. But Matabike and, and Pierce, as I mentioned, just been playing together 
um, the whole year in a way that uh, it's been fairly remarkable. I thought, by the way, I thought Michael Pierce had a good game here. Uh, stopped the run effectively. He was he was manhandling his opponents largely. Uh, both Luke Fortner, the, the the center, and each guard had a lot of trouble blocking Michael Pierce. But uh, um, but it's interesting that he's not being used in exactly the same role that he has for most of the season. And uh, you really notice it right away. I mean, number ninety eight's in there. It can, it can be a little bit difficult to notice the difference between ninety eight and fifty eight. But it's amazing. Travis Jones is a is a relatively lean big man. Whereas Michael Pierce is a, um, I will use my body as a weapon against you, big man, <laughs> who's uh, much, much bigger in terms of uh, uh, his uh, girth and and also some of the other positive things that go along with that. Uh, uh, and uh, you, you can tell the difference, but, but it's 58 and 98. So sometimes I'm looking at the number and I catch the eight, but I can't, I can't see for sure who it is. And I have to wait for the play to, 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 to play out to really uh Tell the difference between the two. Uh, let's move on to the inside linebacker group. Um, kind of another disappointing game from Patrick Queen. Uh, had three missed tackles. There's no doubt about it. All these I would have called missed tackles as well. Uh, one of them was on the sack that Matabike eventually got. So he was in there first, had a chance in that sack, and uh, and didn't put it away. Um I, the only thing I can say is I think Queen is really hurting his market value with these missed tackles. He's still going to make a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. Um, but there's a couple of market currents that are going against him that are really unfortunate from the Ravens perspective. You know, obviously the Ravens want him to get paid as much as possible. I think if he's, if he's moving on um, and, and you want market forces to be, to, I think be directing that since they have, you know, they're going to need the money from out of BK or to make other moves. Maybe, maybe it's Kevin Zeitler is who they can afford. Um, in terms of uh, keeping that offensive line together. But but Patrick Queen, I think, is hurting his value with some of these missed tackles. And he's had quite a few missed tackles the last few weeks. I just want to go through this and um, look at this. He's got 18 missed tackles by PFF. Again, that's a tough source the whole year. He, the first six weeks of the year, he only had three. So he's had 15 missed tackles in the last eight games. That is just unacceptable for a uh, inside linebacker. That's part of the job description is you got to be a, a, a top quality tackle. He's ended up missing almost 15% of his tackles for the year, um, which is, which is not good. Um, and he's still doing some, some positive things. Uh, you know, he, he uh, he's uh, pa- rushing the passer. He fell on the fumble in this game, which is really nice. Um, so there's, some, there's definitely some positive things happening His quickness. The Ravens can really make use of in a lot of ways. Um, he's a good, good guy to run down plays to the outside. So he's part of the Ravens horizontal strength. They've had this year as, as you know, queen has been a guy, um, but, uh, but the missed tackles are costing him some money and that's unfortunate. So uh, we'll see how that uh, works out the rest of the year. Roquan Smith had a really big game. Uh, lots of downhill tackling, particularly in the passing game. Uh, uh, to uh, uh, g- limit yards after the catch. And it, it seems like so many times per game where there's a throw in the middle of the field, and usually it's in that 2-3-4 area. I'm sorry, the the two three four are columns. I mean, let me just go over this one since I don't think I, I've done this in a while. But um, I, I divide the field into five strips that are vertical to the field. A one is outside the left numbers. A two is between the left numbers and the left hash. A three is between the two hashes. A four is between the numbers and the right hash. And then a five is outside of the right numbers. So 
two, three, and four are the typical area that you might think of an inside linebacker as roaming. Typically, their short zones are going to be in that area. Their coverage um, uh, in, in terms of drops, they have to manage their depth well to make sure that they don't give up a lot of throws between level two and level three. And part of what they need to then do is come downhill and make tackles, uh, which can be a little bit uh, uh, challenging for them at times. But Roquan just has great instincts. Uh, we see that over and over again in terms of of stopping people. A lot of times it's on a second down um, that he'll bring up that third down, but sometimes it's on a third down. And um, trying to throw short of the sticks in Roquan Smith's area this year has proved to be a fool's errand. He has been so remarkable at shutting down those plays and and getting his team off the field. So uh, huge addition for the Ravens. And uh, I made the point he's just been a much better player for the Ravens than he has been with the Bears. The things we hear about his leadership this year, they seem real. We seem to hear them. We seem to see them on the field. And when all the other players are basically telling you, you know, that Roquan Smith is telling him, you know, be accountable, be in the right place. And, and, uh, you know, it just seems like whenever he walks to the microphone or whatever, very uh, more or less a business-like demeanor, there's a little bit of swagger there, but but he's much more business-like about how things are going as opposed to other players who, you know, wear their feelings on their sleeve in, in a lot of ways about how happy they are about what's going on and whatnot. And Roquan's always got this, we can never be too satisfied kind of look about him that I've uh, I've really appreciated about him as a as a player. I don't think it's overbearing in any way. I know in the Ray Lewis years, some people thought that the preacher Ray uh, component of his leadership style was something that they they didn't really appreciate. Joe Flacco often said, I don't even understand what he's saying sometimes. Um, but, uh, but you know, Roquan seems to be able to get the team fired up in a way similar to Ray um, uh, before games. And it's, uh, uh, it's great to see that. And uh, really nice to know he's going to be with the Ravens for these next few years leading this defense because uh, uh, he's an outstanding player. Let's move on to the outside linebackers, talk about them for a little bit. Uh, Jadavian Clowney, kind of a quiet night in terms of his uh, rushing the passer. He uh, had a couple of pressures, um, did not really contribute. Um, I believe both his pressures were uh, not contributing to other quarterback hits. Let me confirm that for a second here. He had a pressure on a pass that went for four yards. He had another pressure on what became the pass defense in the back of the end zone by Hamilton. So that was a nice one. Um, Maybe that was something where Lawrence's throw was impacted in some way, but I thought that was mostly Hamilton just getting a little piece of that football and making that ball juggleable in the back of the end zone where uh, uh, it uh, it definitely created doubt over whether the uh, receiver was in bounds, was ruled uh, out of bounds in, um, in the end zone, and that was a, obviously a big play for the Ravens to uh, be able to get off the field uh, shortly after that, two plays after that, and uh, for the last time, as it turned out. But uh, Clowney is still having a big year. Um, as I said in, in a lot of the discussion in the first part of the show, um, that Lawrence did not really allow for pressure to develop in this game very much. And it was to his own detriment. So through for 3.8 yards per play on 20 ball out quick plays. Okay. That's just not very good. Probably normal would be in the five and a half to six range, even against the Ravens. I think that a lot of teams have been um, over five yards per play on those ball out quick throws. Remember, all your sacks are taken out of that. So you certainly better throw for five yards uh, uh, per throw when you take out your sacks. And this was a game that the, the Jags just had too many balls lost. They had tackles that ended up being made for loss or for very little gain on those pass plays to the outside. 
Um, just a lot of things went wrong for the Jags in terms of the balls that that, that came out quickly in this game. Um, and I thought that that um, uh, the trade-off that Lawrence decided upon may have been health-related. You know, keep keep people off his legs. Gianna actually is the one who mentioned this in the in the first part of the show, but also that um, if you look at his results. He really damaged the Ravens when he got ample time and space for almost 10 yards per throw. And he also was very effective when pressure occurred. If you put those two together, he had about 7.6 yards per throw on the combination of pressures and ample time and spaces, which was twice as good as the ball out quick results. So my, my point being that if you're making a choice between taking a chance on pressure or a ball out, sorry, pressure or an ATS versus taking the quote unquote sure thing of a ball out quick, then you 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 probably in you know given the way the Ravens defense was playing in this game, um, he he was better served to take the gamble, hold the ball a little longer, and especially when you consider the fact that the um, the times he left the pocket are going to be uh, times where um, probably there was pressure that forced it, or there was at least time from an ATS pocket that encouraged it. Um, and not that he left, you know, immediately on some sort of design run. I didn't, I didn't really notice any of those from um, uh, from Lawrence in this game. I can't remember a single design run. So if if you think about it that way, a lot of you know the damage he did to the Ravens on the ground, and he was their leading rusher, if I recall correctly. He had forty yards or so. Um, it, that really came off taking that gamble for ATS or pressure as opposed to taking a sure thing bowl out quick. So I thought that he really did the Ravens a big favor in that regard. I think the Ravens probably realized that they didn't want to give up high value ball out quick throws. And they did some things to try and discourage that in this game. The primary one being, um, uh, well, dropping people from the line of scrimmage and simulated pressure and not bringing blitzes from off ball. So when you bring a blitz from off ball, you're basically waving a red flag at Trevor Lawrence, telling him, here's the hot read, here's the hot read, here's the hot read. Kind of like, you know, Homer Simpson, all he can have in his mind is eat, eat, eat the pudding, eat the pudding, eat the pudding. Uh, but you're, you're, you're telling him, throw the ball right there to to, to that open spot on the field, and it, it makes his job a little easier. And the Ravens didn't do a lot of that. They only um, uh, rushed the quarterback with an off-ball blitz uh, six times across five plays. So they, they, they did very little of that, and I thought that uh, that was a good choice. So we're talking about the outside linebackers. Let's move on. Uh, Harrison came back and played his first game back, was in there for nine snaps. All of them were in the base defense. So that's pretty much all he plays at this point. Uh, all were first or second downs with the one exception. He had a third and one play that he was in for. One second and four. Really, it's it's one second down and one third down as far as I can see here. So um, I, the Ravens miss him. I think in that role and more, more than that, they missed the fact that that's nine snaps that he and Robinson can play and the primary three edge rushers don't have to play. So let's do a little math here. They were on the field for 61 snaps that resulted in a, a play as opposed to a, a, a not a penalty, a, a play. So there are 122 outside linebacker snaps were acquired. If you can get 18 out of the combination of Tavius Robinson and um, and Harrison, and let me see if, if Robinson even played that many because he didn't start the game. So I think he was actually a little bit of that. He played seven. So they got 16 of those um, 122 snaps 
taken care of by those two guys. That is a not insignificant contribution of 13% of the snaps taken away uh, that you don't have to find um, by one of those, one of those other top three players. So those guys end up having to play an average of about 62% of the snaps um, each. And given that the relatively, the total snap number was fairly low, um, I thought that was a manageable number. Had, had the snap number been higher, we might've seen some more of Robinson um, in particular uh, uh, mixed in on some later downs. I know they did a little bit more of, of that uh, in the Rams game when they had an overtime game and some more snaps. So they uh, uh, they got him on the field for more. Harrison, of course, wasn't active. Moon was active for this game uh, as a sixth outside linebacker. They never used him defensively, so he was only in there um, really for special teams. A little surprising because I think they've got other guys um, who could do that special teams role who are maybe a safety or a corner or something, but they didn't uh, uh, make the choice to uh, uh, to go with that in this game. Adafi Owe, quiet, quiet game in terms of um, the stat sheet. Had a terrific game, actually. Uh, five pressures, as I counted them, those are five pressures within three seconds. None of them um, uh, led to or, or were a quarterback knockdown in, in their own right, but he had uh, he had pressure to help phone booth the pocket on the quarterback hit that became the intentional grounding by Matabike. So the one where Matabike lost his sack streak uh, extension uh, early, but it left them at the one yard line punting. Uh, really big play in the in the game to, um, uh, to to get the pressure and and close the front door in that one. Then he had let's see, he had one, two, three, and he had another another quarterback hit on the third play of the game. Um, that he contributed to another Matabike quarterback hit. So he's definitely doing his part. Uh, I kind of made the point with Matabike is about as great a closer as the Ravens have seen um, in a very long time. And uh, I'd have to think about uh, about who else other than McCrary really fits into that mold. But um, terrific uh, job for Owe getting some first pressures in this game. We're seeing starting to see some great moves from Owe. Um, really likes the spin move. Probably should be continuing to work on additional moves uh, so he can, he can really develop a pass rush arsenal. But uh, Walker Little did not have a real good chance against Adafi Owe in this game. What kept Adafi Owe off the quarterback was Lawrence getting rid of the ball quickly. So that's, that was one of the um, choices in, in how the, uh, uh, the Jaguars went about their offensive scheme, but, uh, uh, but definitely was, uh, uh, Owe was very effective in the game regardless. Uh, Van Noy uh, definitely had some good plays as well, had three um pressures as i count them uh, again did not get the quarterback on the ground but he also uh did some other positive things in terms of setting people up uh so uh, van noy's been a a terrific find cheap as hell um word on the street is that that he it was really a question of money during the offseason that he thought he was worth more money it turns out he is worth more money He's just not getting it from the Ravens because he, he waited till during the season to sign. And uh, we've made the point several times on the Friday morning GM show that the Ravens have really plugged into something here where they're finding outside linebacker talent cheap from the bargain bin. And this is something that that it would not surprise me if this is an area where they really want to try and continue the ride if they can make it happen. Hopefully the word won't be out next year, you know, that, that a lot of these 31, 32 year old uh, outside linebackers who are available uh, are guys you can you can still you know make good use of, but the Ravens system in particular and the way they have this complementary pass rush going um, has just worked out extremely well for Van Noy and Clowney 
um, this season in particular. So, uh, and obviously we, we go back to Justin Houston last year and even the contributions of Jason Pierre Paul, while they weren't spectacular in terms of the stat sheet, um, were significant. And, and he came in and not only did he, uh, did he rush the pass or something? He also played the run something. He ate some important early down snaps for the Ravens. I don't really consider that a central characteristic of any of the three guys um, this year. I think the big three are all making their mark as pass rushers. And whatever they give you against the run is just a is is just kind of a bonus. Uh, none of them are are really terrible run defenders, um, but they're but they're you know they're making their mark as pass rushers. That's where their real value is. And I think the Ravens would probably go that way again if they're looking at what are the traits that we try and find in a cheap pass rusher, they want to find somebody who has some juice to make some um, primary moves to occasionally create primary pressure and let the rest of this defensive line and the secondary for that matter, eat off the fact that they're getting some initial pressure. So uh, he's done the job and I've been very happy with how Van Noy has played. Got a surprise during the game to see Justin, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Jalen Armour Davis on the field. Um, and he was in there on some, let's see, third and two, second and seven, third and eight, second and 10, first and 10, second and 10. Played six snaps in the second half. All of them were after the injury to Williams, and he was in there replacing Mollette on those snaps. Now, remember, if they went to a nickel in the second half, it had to be with Mollette or Armour Davis in the game because um, Hamilton had been moved back to strong safety from slot corner and they had other options. They could have, you know, brought in Worley at, at uh, strong safety, which I think would have been perfectly fine as well. And used, used uh, Hamilton, uh, continue to use Hamilton in the slot where he'd been very effective, especially considering, you know, how this game rolled out. The fact that um, uh, Lawrence was really continuing to throw underneath, underneath, underneath. It would have been interesting to try and have that actual, uh, that extra horizontal defender in the form of, of, um, Hamilton up front to uh, to do even more damage, but the Ravens were effective. They you know they they stopped them for three point eight yards per play and on uh, on such snaps anyway. So I can't argue too much with what happened. And Hamilton made a couple of plays on the back end too. Um, really nice uh, uh, PD in the end zone um, to uh, to help save a touchdown there. So uh, can't be upset about that. We have not seen much of Darby. Darby didn't play at all in this game. He was in there on special teams. I saw him, obviously, but uh, um, uh, Yasin, uh, not even active. Healthy scratch again uh, for another game. So it's interesting. These guys who got him through the early part of the season at left corner. So you had Stevens at right corner, and you had these two guys splitting time at left corner, and they played just some outstanding football to get him through, particularly Darby. Um, but now it seems like Jalen Armish Davis is ahead of Yassine on the cornerback depth chart, which is an amazing turn of events, frankly, uh, based on how these guys were signed during the offseason as what was expected of them, uh, that Rock Yassine was going to be more of a guy who would hold down one corner spot and you hope for the best until until at least Humphrey comes back and maybe even after that. So uh, uh, the way this has worked out with Stevens being the team's number one corner, Humphrey returning and playing every snap now, and, and both Darby and Yassine being out of work has been very surprising to me. So uh, anyway, it is what it is, and it's nice to have depth at corner, and the Ravens may still need it at some point this season. Marlon Humphrey, outstanding game. 
and he got called Marion Humphrey, I believe, by uh, uh, Chris Collinsworth, who was not able to read his uh, uh, card. It was actually kind of funny to hear that happen because you know exactly what's happened. He's, it's, it says Marion, and he's got a speck of food on it or something. He's reading it wrong. And how can you read your card for a player like Marlon Humphrey? <laughs> you know his name is not Marion, but uh, but anyway, it was an interesting kind of a kind of thing that happened. Humphrey did not allow a single big play in the game. Um, really looked outstanding back at home. A couple nine-yard throws on the sideline were all he allowed. Um, one time with Hamilton underneath, and he was over the top. Uh, he came down, stuck him for no gain after the catch, so that's nice. Another time for um, nine yards again, nine plus zero on the right sideline. And I swear, he, the receiver in that play had to go up into the air. I don't remember if it was Zay Jones or it was Ridley, um, but it was one of those two. And, and, and they went up for the ball, and it looked to me like Humphrey could have carried him right out of bounds, which I believe that is a legitimate force-out methodology. I, if, if the receiver can got, to not get his feet down and tap in bounds, there are no rules against force-outs now, so I don't believe the distance plays any factor in that. So, uh, you know, if you pick him up five yards from the sideline and you can manage to, to get him out of bounds without him getting both feet down, uh, that's still an incomplete pass. But uh, on the play, the receiver did manage to get both feet down in bounds as he was falling out of Humphrey's arms um, uh, for a nine-yard game. But very physical play by Humphrey. It's great to see him attacking the receiver like that. Um, the other play, which was truly exceptional, was on the second to last play of the game where Humphrey delivered the the pass defense on the right sideline from the Jaguars' perspective. So he was uh, out there at left cornerback again. Um, I'll swear that looked like Jimmy Smith in Super Bowl 47 to me. Jimmy Smith took Crabtree's head off, basically, uh, on that final uh, three-play stand, second and five, third and five, fourth and five that, that I've talked about many times. But uh, but the hit on Crabtree and, that, and, and what Jimmy Smith did on that three-play sequence – um, really was uh, uh, made him the defensive MVP of that Super Bowl in a lot of ways, and uh, remarkable play there for uh, uh, for Humphrey as well. And and, and it just even to evoke that memory, it's it's uh, it's very special. Same spot on the field, same approximate yard line on the field. Uh, Humphrey came at him and and nearly beheaded him in a, in a similar manner. And and you know the game has changed last eleven years. They've taken a lot of that stuff out of the game, so it wasn't flagged, and I thought the Ravens were actually kind of lucky that that did not draw a flag in that particular situation because it definitely looked like Humphrey uh, went into him pretty hard. But uh, great game from Marlon. It's good to see him back playing some good football, man. It's it's just it'll be so important for the postseason to have Marlon playing at a high level where you can really trust your corners on both sides because the Ravens will have other difficulties they have to work through, whether it's injuries we don't know but know about yet continue to figure out the slot corner situation, whether they can move Hamilton back there, find somebody else they like on the back end, leave it to Williams and Stone if Williams recovers. But they'll have problems they have to deal with. And and uh, depth at that position, very important. And it starts by having your starters be guys you can completely trust. Arthur Mollette, not his best game. Um, a lot of couple big catches. Uh, it was unfortunate. Uh, by the way, Humphrey, in, in, in terms of stats in this game, allowed – Three of eight balls for to be caught for 23 yards. So he allowed a seven-yard catch um, where he allowed minus one yak and two nine-yard catches where he allowed zero yak. So I believe the total, and I, I don't know if PFF will back this up, but that's how I charted it, um, had had uh, uh, three of eight um, balls thrown his way were, um, uh, were complete. So Marlon Humphrey playing at a very high level. 
Arthur Mollett, a little more difficulty. Um, he uh, uh, has had trouble. Now, I'm not ready to completely say who was re- responsible for the wheel route on Agnew that got lost off the off the left sideline. But what it looked like to me right off the line of scrimmage is there was a pre-snap communication um, between Mollett and Stevens, who was on that same side. Stevens then took the um, rubbing receiver off on that play, or, or one of the two receivers that are crossing each other, let's put it that way, and took him to the inside of the field. So I don't think Stevens had responsibility for that. So the question is, should there have been another safety back there? Was Stone late to the play or whatnot? Um, it did appear a little strange that Mallette did not try and stay with Agnew. Now, Agnew is quick, so it would have been a difficult um, assignment for him. But, you know, you, you try and take away some of the strike zone for Lawrence in terms of uh, uh, the, the catch radio for Agnew. He's not a huge player. Um, and, and make it so that it's a, um, a, a more difficult a catch and a more difficult throw. Um, and, and that often will, will force the quarterback to adjust and throw that ball a little bit differently. But in this case, uh, Agnew uh, uh, just got away scot-free, easiest throw imaginable, and then Agnew makes a fairly simple um, move on Stone. I don't really blame Stone for that. Obviously, Agnew reads leverage pretty well. He's a kick returner for starters. That really is a very nice attribute to have in a kick returner. And we saw in this game, just you know, he was fairly effective returning a couple of kickoffs against the Ravens. Um, I thought that he he did a very good job of waiting for Stone to get the leverage on the wrong foot. Um, when he made his move, and then he, he's just much too quick and was gone before before Stone could react to it. So um, no, I wouldn't call it a missed tackle, really, the, on, in that particular case by Stone. Um, it would have been very difficult for him to maintain any kind of leverage, and to do so, he probably would have had to give up significant yards down the sideline, um, maybe another 20 or so. So maybe it ends up being they get the ball at the 10-yard line instead of scoring, but uh, it would have still been an enormous play for you know, maybe 55 yards instead of 65, even if he'd made every decision, um, you know, optimally uh, relative to Agnew on that play. So anyway, I'm not 100% sure it was Mollett's fault, and I'm not I'm not 100% sure that, that Stone has something, so I'm going to take a little more time to review that play and um, maybe talk about it again later in the week. Brandon Stevens, another pretty darn good game. Really ticky-tack DPI call against him, I thought. But uh, but otherwise, I thought he played pretty well. He did give up a, a, a fairly substantial play during the game. I think it was for 28 yards. Am I thinking about him? No, that's not. that wasn't him. That wasn't him. So um, I have to look back at the coverage uh, for this game and remind myself of what other plays he gave up in this game. So... Thirty-six yard play. That's the one. So that one came in the yeah. It was the second to last play of the first half when they got the thirty-six yard play to get right down to the five yard line. And so Zay Jones got behind him on that left sideline, uh, made the catch falling down. Uh, the good news was Stevens got out right on top of him. Uh, Stevens was in the right place on the subsequent play. Uh, to allow Williams to uh, make his move downhill and make that nice inbounds tackle. I think that was on Parker Washington by that left sideline. That was just one of the biggest gifts the Jaguars could bestow upon the Ravens um, a week before Christmas that uh, was really special. I have no idea why you throw that ball anywhere but in the end zone. Um, but I, I, I heard from Gianna in the first part of the show that the Ravens knew it was coming. 
at least according to Harbaugh. So it's uh, that's an interesting uh, call. And Williams certainly was in the right place to deal with it, rolled over him, took a hit for the team in terms of of, of a groin injury on the play, which is very unfortunate because the Ravens uh, you know, really could use Marcus Williams uh, on the back end of their secondary the rest of the year and into, into uh, um, the playoffs as well. But um, uh, they may have to be without him for a game or two now uh, with another uh, injury showing up. So hopefully uh, during that time, that uh, that peck heals a little bit as well. Gino Stone, a little bit of a tough day in terms of tackling. He's had some problems with that this year. Um, I, I think he's fine on the back end. I think that, you know, he's a ball hawk primarily. Uh, he's a tackle secondarily. And one of the reasons that I was kind of, supposing you leave Hamilton on the back end to play strong safety is that you really need to have one good tackler back there. So if you don't have that with stone, and I think the stones had you know difficulty this year in terms of, of uh, stringing together good tackling games, then you really need to have somebody like Hamilton back there to, uh, uh, to be the guy who finishes plays off. And they do have um, uh, Daryl Worley as well, who I, I believe has been perfect as a tackler this year, pretty close to it. Um, I would think he'd be a guy they would give another shot to in the back end. The other guy they have is Adams, the ex-Bear and several of the teams, New England maybe player, um, who could come in on the on the back end as well uh, and allow Hamilton to play up front. It's just it, it, Hamilton's value as a horizontal defender, I just I am in love with, obviously, in terms of, of what he can do for you at the line of scrimmage. Um, and so I'm, I'm loath to move him to the back end, even though in this game, hey, you know, he made some big plays for the Ravens on the back end. Uh, I just think he was probably even better on the on the front side. So uh, uh, we'll see how this uh, how this plays out and what the how the Ravens will adjust uh, uh, in terms of if they if they have to spend time without Williams the uh, for any extended period. They have gone to a, uh, a a big nickel look for most of their plays when they've had all three of their primary safeties healthy and Mollett only for a for a, a, a smattering of plays here and there, but uh, but not not very frequently on the field. That'll take care of the individual players. Uh, I'll, go, I'll go through my uh, MVPs uh, fairly quickly here. Uh, the guys uh, I have from three to one are in the article. If you didn't, if you read that, so you, you're, you're ahead of me there. But the number three guy, Marlon Humphrey, and I just talked extensively about what he did. But only three of eight completions against him for 23 yards. Um, that's less, less than three yards a target. You'll take that. Um, and uh, great to see the number one corner playing like the number one corner again. Number two, Kyle Hamilton. Lots of good plays up close to the line of scrimmage. He wasn't perfect. He'd get blocked in the run game some. Uh, he had a, he was attributed with at least one additional pass defense that was more than what he got, but he actually was in there diving to try and impact throws. Some of them he made it happen. Some of them he didn't. Uh, you know, he had bracket coverage unusually on the underneath side by the sideline with Humphrey uh, on top of the play and uh, just very good about knowing when he can take a chance to undercut the route and try and make a deflection. That was one of those opportunities. It didn't work out. There's another one where he dove in the end zone to try and stop a ball that was threaded in very well to Ridley. And as far as I can see on that play, it was more or less a ball that was a combination of just thrown a little too low and Ridley couldn't dig it out. But I don't believe either Ravens defender touched it. Mollette was trailing the play and um, Hamilton closed the window effectively, but uh, uh, he didn't uh, touch the ball, I don't believe. I think that was all on uh, on Ridley. Might have been some alligator arms from Ridley trying to not get hit on the play, but uh, um, definitely I don't think it was Hamilton that, that uh, made the play on the ball. 
And then number one, Justin Matabike, pretty easy choice again. Uh, he's living the life right now, and we're uh, we're all just living in his world right now. Uh, it's uh, an incredible job he has done to be a closer and a, a finisher uh, on pressure, and he's so valuable to the Ravens in that regard. Um, uh, I, I have, over the last couple of weeks in particular, I'm switched over to the notion that the Ravens pretty much have to franchise him. I don't think it means they have to tra- to to um, have him play, but they have to at least get more value than just a simple compensatory pick out of it. I think he's worth more. I think somebody will will give more for him. Um, and and whoever whoever trades for him will get an opportunity to sign Matabike to a multi-year deal. And they probably will trade some significant value in addition to that to get him because uh, he's a uh, a very special player. And uh, it's it's it'd be unfortunate. I I think at most, um, I think it's going to be difficult anyway to sign him to a long term deal that's that's specific to the Ravens that they get him for four years or something and uh, and you know ninety million dollars or something. I think it's going to be difficult to get that deal signed. So I think he does end up playing somewhere else, whether it's in twenty four or in twenty five. And so 25, they would still have a compensatory pick they could defer a year, uh, which would be kind of nice because they might be over the limit in the in terms of 25 uh, compensatory picks if they lo- if they were to lose him this uh, offseason. But they they uh, also um, could potentially accelerate draft capital into 2024, which is something we've talked about various um, ways to do it. But I think actually tagging and trading Matabike might be uh, one of the way one of the most likely ways that they could actually gain anything significant because um, there is no miraculous, you know, Brown's draft day movie way to generate a lot of draft capital. Um, that's going to happen at the, at the snap of the fingers or even with any combination of moves. And most of them are, you know, you're trading value for value. And, and it's basically um, if you're not giving up a player or not trading a lot of future capital, you won't gain a lot of capital in 24. So the, the, it's, it has to really be a player, and have to, it would have to be a player like Matabike that they have clear value created by the tag um, that they could then trade. So uh, I'm not for it. I don't want to see him leave either. I want to see Justin Matabike wear a Ravens uniform for the rest of his career, if possible. The Ravens just may not be in a position to make that work, and, and uh, it may be that tag and trade is the uh, is the alternative that makes the most sense. Let me see what I've got in terms of the mailbag here. I know we had at least one or two good questions over here that I wanted to get to, and indeed we do. Um, let's talk. Let's go first to the, the a question by Kevin Longshore at, at Andrew C four one zero something or other. Um, how significant would having a meaningless game against the Steelers Week eighteen be for managing defensive line snaps going into the playoffs, particularly if they had the bye? Do you think there would be notable benefit? All right, so I think I think you can look at this in a couple of different ways. They 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 certainly the defensive line is one of the groups that potentially could benefit. But in order for them to benefit, somebody else has to come up and play those week eighteen snaps. So I, to the best of my knowledge, they only really have one guy, and that'd be uh, Rashad Nichols, who's really ready to play in an NFL game. Uh, and and so they're still going to have to have a significant number of defensive line snaps taken by people who are currently among the big five because they haven't expanded the group at all. Now they could sign somebody before then, but if you're talking about specifically for the defensive line, I kind of think that that's one of the least impacted groups. 
that if they if they got into that week 18 game, first of all, they might very well be trying to lose it, whether they'll admit that or ever publicly. Um, you know, they'd probably rather be boiled in oil than admit they try and lose a game to the Steelers to get the Bills out of the playoffs. But that could legitimately be the be the circumstances they find themselves in. Um, I think they would try and run the game and get the game over quickly. I think they would use it as an opportunity to get Malik Harrison or sorry, Malik Cunningham in the game and get some QB snaps for the first time. But I honestly believe the defensive line would not be the beneficiary um, to any great degree. And the more you try and tank a game like that, the more you probably leave the Steelers with a number of offensive snaps, more offensive snaps than they would otherwise have. So I don't think that's, that's um, I don't think the defensive line would actually be the one to benefit. But great question, Kevin, really appreciate it. Um, who else do we have here? We have Angelove85. Now, this one, I was not sure I could understand the question earlier, so let me see if I got it. It seems to me that one of the weaknesses of the defense is inconsistency in stopping the run. Do you believe it is scheme, like Dallas, who is built to stop the pass, or fatigue? A game like Buffalo from yesterday can kill the defense. Uh, hashtag film setting me like Okay, so... I, I've kind of been um, talking about this regularly from week to week. I, I don't think it's a um, uh, it, it's a matter of the Ravens can't stop the run. I think they can still stop the run very effectively if they choose to stop the run. I think they choose to stop the pass. And they choose to stop the pass by starting in these two high shells where they can confuse the hell out of the opposing quarterback, make very few quarterbacks really want to throw the ball deep, and force them into playing a lot of small ball. So the, the the other side of that coin is that because they start in these two deep shells, they're effectively waving a wet red flag at the offense saying, run the ball against me. And they've been very effective doing it to the tune of four and a half yards of carry. Um, and that's, I believe that's without the um, uh, spikes, the spikes removed. I'm just going to take a quick look on that. I've got that on my spreadsheet here. So this year they've allowed, yeah, 4.5 yards per carry when you when you take out the the um, kneels, I should say, not the spikes. So 577 for 20, I'm sorry, that's not right. 324 for 14.4 is how I get to 4.5 on that. Uh, they have nine more um, kneels for a total of minus eight yards that are that are built into that rush number that take it down to 4.3. So if you want to, if you want the news as bad as it is, it's 4.5 yards of carry. I still don't think that's that terrible. I think it's very hard to move the ball down the field against a team, even at that kind of rate. And if you look at the Ravens of past years, you know, we've often been frustrated by exactly that fact that the Ravens would make a mistake uh, for much of the Lamar era, fumble a football or, or something else would go wrong that would keep them from realizing their full um, value of their run game, even though they're running for 4.5 yards per carry or sometimes more in terms of um, uh, what they were doing. So, uh, you know, they're making this choice and it's resulted in the best pass defense in team history. And while they've given up half a yard more than I'd be comfortable with giving away on the ground, they've saved more than that in terms of yards per pass play, uh, created enormous um, amounts of variation against the pass that's extremely useful. Uh, to get defenses off the field. Defenses need variance. So they need to see, you know, you want penalties on the offense. You want in, uh, strings of incomplete passes. You want turnovers and uh, and you want sacks. And those are the four major tools you have to get the offense off the field. And um, when you can um, be generating the kind of sack rate the Ravens have and, you know, a solid turnover rate um, in terms of interceptions, at least, 
um, and, uh, you know, creating a fair number of offensive penalties as well uh, against them. Um, that's that's where they're, they're deriving a lot of their uh, high rate of series wins, meaning the individual series of downs wins that the Ravens have had this year. They're not quite the best in the league, but they're very close. Um, the Browns are at a, a at a really remarkable level for that this year. But uh, this is something that I think that, that um, the Ravens have made a conscious choice. I think it's a good choice. I think they'll continue. And I think McDonald, wherever he goes next, um, is probably going to take that with him. And we, if it'll be one of the acid tests you'll see is if he goes to the Bears or some other team next year, you know, do they suddenly become a team that is happy giving up four and a half yards per rush and all of a sudden becomes this incredible uh, stalwart pass defense team? So um, we'll see how that works out. And and uh, um, hopefully McDonald won't be lost either next year. But uh, but it's one of the ways we we kind of test our assumptions about this and uh, and, and see that happen. Thanks for the questions, guys. I will uh, be talking about the offense tomorrow. I'm. It is supposed to be with James Ogden, which I'm really looking forward to. Our friend from the UK uh, does a lot of things for Ravens UK, and we uh, uh, got the chance to meet him uh, when we were in the game in uh, at the game in London. Uh, very nice guy, extremely knowledgeable about football, and uh, and definitely something somebody I want to talk to. So if you're listening to this episode, you want to put in your question on the offensive side of the ball. Please do that. I'll be having that discussion in the afternoon tomorrow with him. So uh, got to be pretty quick about getting your questions in because I think it'll be around 3 p.m. Eastern. I'll be having that discussion. Other folks out there, if you'd like to be on a film study short, hit me up. DMs are always open on Twitter. I want to hear from you. If I could ask for one other thing, um, if you're listening this long, I really appreciate you being the kind of loyal listener you are. Take the time, if you would, to write a nice 50-word, five-star review for us and, and go ahead and put that out on your favorite podcast app. Uh, alternatively, show one other friend of yours, maybe an older person who doesn't deal with podcasts or just is, that's not their natural route. They like to read the paper, damn it, and they, and, they, and they don't know about it. But maybe you can show them just how on their computer they can, they can go right to the website and click the play button on the podcast uh, section of, the, of filmstudybaltimore.com and just listen right there. Um, if they're if they're so inclined while they're uh, while they have time, sometimes uh, people just need to need, need to know a new way is out there to listen to the pod to, to give it a chance. And um, we rely on that word of mouth advertising, whether you're writing reviews or showing new people uh, how to use the how to use the site. Well, thanks, folks, and uh, we'll talk to you next time on Film Study. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.